Now Pashur the priest, the son of Emir, who was chief officer in the house of the Lord, heard Jeremiah prophesying these things. Then Pashur beat Jeremiah the prophet and put him in the stocks that were in the upper Benjamin gate of the house of the Lord. The next day, when Pashur released Jeremiah from the stocks, Jeremiah said to him, The Lord does not call your name Pashur, but terror on every side. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I will make you a terror to yourself and to all your friends. They shall fall by the sword of their enemies while you look on. And I will give all Judah into the hand of the king of Babylon. He shall carry them captive to Babylon and shall strike them down with the sword. Moreover, I will give all the wealth of the city, all its gains, all its prized belongings, and all the treasures of the kings of Judah into the hand of their enemies, who shall plunder them and seize them and carry them to Babylon. And you, Pashur, and all who dwell in your house shall go into captivity. To Babylon you shall go, and there you shall die, and there you shall be buried, you and all your friends to whom you have prophesied falsely. O Lord, you have deceived me, and I was deceived. You are stronger than I, and you have prevailed. I have become a laughingstock all the day. Everyone mocks me. For whenever I speak, I cry out. I shout violence and destruction. For the word of the Lord has become for me a reproach and derision all day long. If I say, I will not mention him or speak any more in his name. There is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I am weary with holding it in, and I cannot. For I hear many whispering, terror on every side. Denounce him. Let us denounce him, say all my close friends watching for my fall. Perhaps he will be deceived, and we can overcome him and take our revenge on him. But the Lord is with me. As a dread warrior. Therefore, my persecutors will stumble. They will not overcome me. They will be greatly shamed, for they will not succeed. Their eternal dishonor will never be forgotten. O Lord of hosts, who tests the righteous, who sees the heart and the mind, let me see your vengeance upon them, for to you I have committed my cause. Sing to the Lord, praise the Lord, for he has delivered the life of the needy from the hand of evildoers. Cursed be the day on which I was born, the day when my mother bore me. Let it not be blessed. Cursed be the man who brought the news to my father. A son is born to you, making him very glad. Let that man be like the cities that the Lord overthrew without pity. Let him hear a cry in the morning and an alarm at noon, because he did not kill me in the womb, so my mother would have been at my grave, and her womb forever great. Why did I come out from the womb to see the toil and sorrow and spend my days in shame? This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we need your help. We read the words, we hear them spoken, but we need your spirit to impart them to our hearts, to work change within us so that we are not the same when we leave here today. So we commit to you this time. And we ask that you would proclaim your word to our hearts. Open our eyes that we might see wonderful things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. We've seen Jeremiah throughout the book at some pretty low points, but I think we could all agree this is the lowest that we have seen him so far. Some of you may read these words and think, 
I can't believe anyone who trusts God would ever say something like that. What we've just read. Others of you may look at these words and find them all too familiar. And the difference has to do with suffering. Not everyone suffers in the same way. There is a suffering that leads to this kind of despair. And we see it not only in Jeremiah, we see it in Job. We see it in the Psalms. We even see it in Paul's letters. In 2 Corinthians 1.8, Paul wrote, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Normally, we get to the application at the end of the sermon, but I want to give the application up front this morning. I want us to have some things in our minds as we think about this whole idea of suffering, in particular how we look at Jeremiah's life. There's a few things that I think that we need to consider, that we need to be careful of when it comes to suffering and how we as believers process pain, grief, and loss that suffering brings. The first is not all suffer the same. I've said this once already. It may seem quite plain that all, all suffer the same, but we live in a time where there seems to be a com- competition uh, among uh, suffering, even that has infiltrated the church, to where any time you speak of your suffering, someone feels the need to tell you how bad they've done it, suffered, experienced, whatever. Recognize we don't all suffer the same. Uh, we don't all suffer the same in this room. We don't all have the same experiences. We don't all suffer the same. As if we read church history, we haven't all experienced the same things. If we consider our brothers and sisters around the world who suffer for the name of Christ, who live in much harsher conditions, who live under oppressive governments and fear of being called out, we don't all suffer the same. Second, we don't all process suffering the same. Every one of us is growing spiritually. If you've been a believer however many years, let's say 20 years, you're not the same person that you were 10 years ago or 15 years ago or five years ago. You've grown. You've changed. The Lord has grown you in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so how you respond to suffering is different today than it was 10 years ago or however long you've been saved. So as we grow, we are going to process suffering differently. Be careful not to place additional burdens on sufferers when they voice despair in their pain. It's possible you haven't felt what they felt. It's possible that you're in a different place spiritually than they are. I think it's good to remember the prophetic words that Isaiah spoke that Jesus later applied to himself when he said, A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. Third, suffering produces a fruit through faith. James speaks of this. He actually takes us back to the Old Testament prophets to make this point in James 5 and speaks of how the suffering the prophets endured, like Jeremiah, produced patience. You might think of Romans 5. It's more well known for this. We rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance And endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Another passage in James points out that suffering is designed to take us to prayer. That is, to God himself. 
Suffering is designed to push us to the Lord, that we would draw near to Him, draw near to the one who is close to the brokenhearted. And fourth, I've hinted at this already, and this may sound strange, but don't try to make your suffering greater than it is. We live in a time that there are certain ideologies in our culture, and the church is not immune to the culture around us. We're affected by things that are going on. There's an ideology called intersectionality that seeks to teach people, and especially young people in academia, all the ways that they are oppressed and can claim victimhood. It is a shame because God hates injustice, and so as his people should we. And yet what intersectionality does is it makes a mockery of oppression. It turns injustice upside down, turns it into something that is to be achieved, something that is to be celebrated, something that is to give someone an identity, not to be something that should be hated. It's unwise and actually harmful. We ought not to try to make more or less of our suffering or someone else's. We shouldn't try to outdo one another in suffering. So when you see someone who's suffering or someone shares with you that they are hurting, don't say things like, oh, I know exactly what you're going through. Even if you think you do. Just not a good time to say it. Just listen. Be kind. You know, the people that have not told me I know exactly what you're going through and have listened, I usually know when the tears come down their cheeks that they know exactly what I'm going through. So be careful. Don't say things like, oh, you think that's bad. Let me tell you what I went through. Not helpful. I've done this. I know I've done this. We, 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 you know, we're, we're trying to have conversation. We're trying to relate to each other. We don't even realize how our words come out. Let's be careful with how we say things. We don't have to outdo each other in victimhood. But instead, let us outdo one another in showing goodness and mercy toward each other. We do this by being kind, by listening, by being present with one another, and by pointing each other to our true comforter, Jesus. Now, again, I know application usually comes at the end, but there it is, and the beginning. So I want us to have this in mind now as we enter into Jeremiah's experience here in chapter 20. Chapter 20 is a continuation from what we just looked at in the pottery accounts. If you noticed in the opening verse, it says that Pashur heard what Jeremiah was prophesying and took him to beat him. So he had heard Jeremiah. Maybe he went with Jeremiah to see the the pottery broken. But at the end, you remember Jeremiah came back to the temple and prophesied again. Maybe it was there that Pashur heard him. But he hears his presence. This is a continuation of that narrative. And this particular passage, you notice that there's a real juxtaposition after verse 6 that the, the, you know, you're, you're hearing this narrative, the description of what Jeremiah experienced. And then we move into the second section, which is his confession or complaint, as we've called them, that Jeremiah begins praying to the Lord. And so these two parts make up chapter 20. There is a turn in the book at this point. And we'll see this in the weeks to come. This is the last of Jeremiah's confessions. Depending on how they're numbered, this would be, I think, number six. Some people number them a little differently. Um, But this is the last of the confessions that we, as we've seen, these prayers that Jeremiah makes to the Lord that often sound more like complaints than they do confessions. 
And I think it's providential that we're going to take a break from Jeremiah for a couple weeks. Uh, I'm going to go on vacation. Uh, we're going to leave this afternoon and be gone for the next couple weeks. We're going to have Dr. Mark Futado and uh, Dr. Mike Osborne with us the next two Sundays. And so we'll come back to Jeremiah after that. So I think it's kind of providential that right at this break in the book where we're, we're making a turn, uh, we're taking a break itself. So we'll come back to this later in the summer. Today, what we need to keep in mind is that the brutal experience that Jeremiah has at the hand of Pashur is related to the confession that he makes. These aren't two separate incidents. He complains or cries out to the Lord because, in part, he experienced what he did. If any of us had been ridiculed, belittled, and dismissed for the decades that Jeremiah had, we too might be a little downcast. If any of us had been publicly beaten... Locked in the stocks overnight, we too might despair of life. So I think we can cut Jeremiah some slack while recognizing at the same time that he doesn't stay here. He doesn't remain here. And neither in our own suffering will we stay where we are. We will see hope as well. We see in verse 13 this interjection of hope in Jeremiah's confession. It's really kind of a crescendo. As, as you see, Jeremiah is trying to climb out of the pit of despair, and he speaks of the Lord being his warrior, and the Lord is going to vindicate him, and then he sings praises to the Lord, and of course then he goes back down the roller coaster. We'll look at that in a minute. But Paul does the same thing. The psalmist does the same thing. Job did the same thing. We see these throughout Scripture. We read this together uh, this morning in 2 Corinthians 4, or Glenn read it to us, but we, we, we read with him that passage that speaks of where the sermon title comes from, this affliction that Paul was describing. And it picks up on the verse that we left with last week, that we closed the sermon out with, that we have these treasures in jars of clay. That's a verse that many of us are familiar with, and often we forget what comes next where he says, we have this power and we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the power is from God, not from us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. The suffering that Jesus endured was for our sake, and our suffering is somehow a participation in his that is, it has purpose. Colossians 1 deals with this some. Uh, there's some mystery left in it. We don't get all the answers to our questions of why. We, we don't get to make sense of suffering in this life. There's often no easing of pain in the midst of this suffering, even though we know these things to be true. And yet we are comforted in knowing that our Savior is one who is acquainted with grief. And so looking at verse 1, we are introduced to Pashur. He is described as the chief officer in the temple. He was part of the priestly regiment, and he seems to have some role of security and enforcement. Now, if you can imagine at this time with the number of people that were involved, even though it says Pashur beat Jeremiah, Pashur is probably just the one giving the orders. It's ascribed to him. He's the one who's responsible for what happens. But he is probably has an entire group of men around him that get the job done. And in his response, though, the reason for his doing this is that he heard Jeremiah prophesying about this invading army. And I don't think it was the first time Pashur heard this. I think he just got, he got fed up with it. Whatever it was about this one experience... 
he had had enough. And he decided just to take matters into his own hands and to have him beaten. Now, we're not given a ton of detail, but it's, it's fairly certain in, in, in my mind, at least, that this was a public beating. This wasn't something done privately. That's typically how things were done historically in such floggings. It's possible that Pashur, again, gave the order that he didn't do this himself, but he had men who did these things. And then, as humiliating and painful as such a beating was, I think being put in the stocks might be the thing that is harder for us to imagine. Where the beating was a, an acute pain, it was fairly short-lived. Would have, there would have been lasting marks, certainly, that, that, that went on, but the pain would have subsided. The stocks, however, would have been uh, the, this being locked in a position. If you've, if you've ever had a night where you've slept on a horrible mattress, or you've gone camping and you've had no mattress at all, and you've had one of those nights where you just cannot sleep because you're in pain. Every time you turn over, every time you try and get comfortable, you just continually wake up in pain over and over and over. That pales in comparison to what it would have been like to be locked in a position where you couldn't move all night. There were no stretch breaks. And not to get gross here, but there were no potty breaks either. This was an utterly humiliating and excruciating experience for Jeremiah. And it all happened at the Benjamin Gate in the temple. In other words, this was all public. Everyone gets to come by and see you having this experience. Upon his release the following day, Jeremiah then gives a new name to Pashur. He says, your name no longer means fruitful all around. That's what Pashur means. His name is now changed to terror all around. Instead of blessings all around, it is now terror all around. This isn't childish name calling. This is rather a prophetic utterance that Pashur will represent what will happen to the people, that the judgment would come upon them all. He's given some specific details about what he's going to experience. Some people are going to die in judgment. Some people are going to be carried off. He's told he would be carried off to Babylon. Instead of being surrounded by blessing, he would now be a sign of terror to all the people of what was coming. That's the explanation the Lord gives. I will make you a terror to yourself, and to all your friends. He would be tormented, and he would torment others. And then the Lord goes on to name who the invading army is. This is the first time we've been told it's Babylon. If when I read it, it sounded strange that the word Babylon kept getting repeated, it's because it's intentional. The Lord includes it four times in these three verses to make the point, don't make any mistakes, this is who's coming. And when you see the invading army coming from the north and you realize it's Babylon, you're going to know Jeremiah wasn't a conspiracy theorist. He wasn't lying. He wasn't a false prophet. You're going to know Babylon, 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 Babylon. says it four times. Jeremiah is a true prophet. And then Pashur specifically is given the message that he will be carried off into this foreign land. He's going to be uh, carried off so that he will die, not in his home country, but in this faraway land, there he would be buried along with his friends to whom he prophesied falsely. Now, we're not given the account of his false prophecy. We're just told to whom you have prophesied lies or prophesied falsely. The word there really is lies. That's what Pasteur evidently had been doing. He'd been one of these voices who had been telling the people, all will be well. Jeremiah's office rocker. Don't listen to him. Everything's going to be just fine. He's just a conspiracy theorist. Christopher Wright notes of this, lies 
The very last word of the whole section brings it to a depressing close that sums up all that has gone before. It was in the very same place, the temple, that Jeremiah had dared to call the whole charade of Israel's worship along with their official state ideology, identity, and security lies. It's all lies. Israel has bought into this. Judah has believed what the culture around them has said. That This worldview has seeped into them like, a, like frogs in a kettle, slowly absorbing falsehood as fact. The same challenge is set before believers of all times, and we are no different in our own day. It is the same thing that we're up against. We need to be discerning to know what the truth is, to know what is false. And I think most of us here get this that we need wisdom to ensure that we're not buying into the world's lies. But there is another danger that lurks here. In discernment, there is a danger of becoming arrogant and critical. Discernment can often turn into such a critical spirit. It's evidenced if you find fault in everyone else and everything else. If you're the person who has it all figured out and everyone else is wrong and you alone can tell everyone what is wise and good and true, you may have fallen victim to this attitude. We have to be careful in our seeking wisdom to discern things that we are both wise and gentle. Gentleness involves humility I've argued that humility is a hallmark of a mature Christian. You have never met a mature Christian who is proud. You may have met a mature, or you may have met a a, a proud Christian who knows a lot of stuff, but a proud, mature Christian is an oxymoron. Spiritual maturity produces humility, not arrogance. Gentleness doesn't discard the truth. It recognizes, though, that the truth is to be spoken in love. And that love ought to be evident to those who hear it. Not just you insisting your words are being spoken in love. It ought to be evident in how they experience what you're saying. There are lies in every culture throughout time. This is not new. And it's not going to be new in another hundred years. This is one of the ways that Satan works. Satan is a vandal. He wants to destroy the kingdom of God. That's, that's his attempt. He's not going to, by the way, but he wants to. And one of the ways he does this is through lies. He's the father of lies. And so we need to be wise and discerning. But we need to be gentle in how we speak to these things. May we be careful not to get caught up in myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Paul's words to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.4. After this horrible experience that Jeremiah has at the hands of Pashur, Jeremiah now slumps into this deep lament, this final confession. And just imagining what this experience was like, we can at least understand why he would have slumped in such, into such a depression. It was a horrendous experience. Now, the confession, some break this up into two. I, I see it as one confession. Those who argue that this is confession 6 and 7 and that verse 13 is kind of a break see this as... It, the main reason that, that I saw from people who see this as two different confessions is that it doesn't sound right. It sounds uh, almost uh, broken that someone would, would pray this way. But 
If you listened when I read it, or if you go back and read it, you'll see that there is this building of Jeremiah's faith where there is then this crescendo at verse 13 where he praises the Lord for his past, present, and future deliverance. And then the roller coaster comes crashing down. And I'm not trying to interpret this based on my own experience, but this is my experience, and I think that it's the experience of many people. That in, in times of deep lament, when you're crying out to God, He reminds you of your promises, and you praise Him for your promises, but often we, we can't even get the whole promise out before another pain gouges us, or another question of doubt comes up in our heart, and we come crashing back down as Jeremiah does. I think that's what we see here. We see Jeremiah's roller coaster of emotions as he prays to the Lord. He begins by telling his experience. He's been mocked. He's become the laughing stock to all. The people mock and laugh because they don't believe Jeremiah is speaking the truth. This is kind of the crux of, of things. Not only do they, do, do they not repent, which is his message to turn, but they, they, they continually accuse him of being false, a false prophet, that he, he's basically off his rocker, that he's nuts. Because nothing that he is saying is coming true. And again, remember, Jeremiah's ministry, 40 years. So this is going on for a long time. And so this just eats at him and eats at him and eats at him. And they continue to make fun of him and continue to make fun of him. And evidently, Pashur was one of these voices who spoke against him. You know, so many of Jeremiah's sermons were given in or around the temple. So Pashur is hearing this. He's one of the ones over here mocking Jeremiah. And then he has his way with him to take him and to have him humiliated by this. This is Jeremiah's experience. And so he says to him, your word has become a reproach and a derision all day long. In other words, your word isn't coming true. On top of this, he opens it by saying, Lord, you've deceived me. We've seen Jeremiah say this before. You are stronger than I. You have prevailed. For Jeremiah, this task as prophet is personal, as it should be. It was a lived experience. We've seen how he was not, he was not going to get married, wasn't going to have a family, wasn't going to be able to participate in the social norms, to go to festivities, to go to funerals. He was cut off socially from so many because God had called him to be a prophet. His lot in life was very difficult. And then on top of that, the message is not only received, it is rejected, and he's the one left looking like a fool. And so he's blaming God and accusing him, which at best seems misplaced and at worst seems sinful. And while it's true that God is no deceiver, this is how it feels to Jeremiah. This is, this is his lived experience. You ever experience something like that where you, you hear a promise of God in Scripture? You read it, you hear it read, and you think, that's not my experience. God hasn't done that for me. And you pray for it, and you long for it, and you ask God to do this over and over and over again, and He doesn't. Sometimes we might feel like this. It's as if Jeremiah is saying, you keep telling me to tell them a message of judgment that never comes. I feel duped. They all laugh and make me look like a fool. We can at least be sympathetic to how he feels. Jeremiah moves on to say that even though he, if he tried not to speak, if he tried to just say, Lord, I'm not doing it anymore, there is something deep within him. He describes it as a fire in his bones. That he can't keep silent. 
He knows the message is true. He feels it down to his bones. And he knows the Lord is with me as a dread warrior. Therefore, my persecutors will stumble. They will not overcome me. They will be greatly shamed, for they will not succeed. Their eternal dishonor will never be forgotten. And then verse 13, where he praises the Lord for past, present, future deliverance. Right? You see the crescendo, how he builds up. His faith is growing. And then at the apex of those words of praise, short as they may be, crashing back down. Cursed is the day that I was born. I wish I had never been born. Now, Jeremiah is, you know, he's not cursing things in retrospective as if that were even possible. He's saying it it should have been cursed. He's regretting ever having been born. He wishes it had never happened. Now, one little rabbit trail here, I think it's worth noting, given our current setting uh, in our country where Roe v. Wade was just overturned, Uh, I'm speaking here to believers, those who profess Christ. There have been a number who have suggested in the broader evangelical world that the Bible doesn't say anything about abortion, that the Bible doesn't say anything about life beginning at conception. There are, in fact, a number of passages that do speak to this, and we're not going to take the time to look at those. I just want you to see the one that's in front of us today, how Jeremiah describes in verse 17 his own life in the womb. He speaks of being killed in utero. That means he was alive in the womb before being born. He, had he died in the womb, he says, his mother's womb would have been his grave. He was a person. He was alive. And so as you interact with others, and especially believers on this, who don't think that God's word speaks to this, this is a passage that you can go to to lovingly help them see that his word is inspired, including Jeremiah, and it speaks to this very thing. Now, in Jeremiah's wish that he had not been born, we note that it is a reflection of his humanity following great suffering. Again, we can be sympathetic to this. It is not necessarily a prescription for how we should respond. I've said this before, and it's worth noting again. All Scripture is inspired. All Scripture doesn't necessarily prescribe. Some scripture describes. Knowing what scripture is, for example, a narrative describes what happened. It's not necessarily prescribing what's happened. And so when we're in a narrative or we're in something like this, we have to be careful to discern. And yet, there's great comfort in that because God chose to give in his inspired word this very honest experience that Jeremiah has. For us to see that pain is real that he recognizes our suffering, that he knows we experience this. We aren't to simply be dismissive of our suffering or the suffering of others. We shouldn't suggest that others not lament or grieve. We can do this and do so honestly. Scripture ought to be applied, though, like a balm, not like a caustic liquid. Scripture ought to be applied like a scalpel, not like a bludgeoning sword. And yet, while we can identify with Jeremiah's grief, Jesus is our example. As we grow in grace and knowledge, it is He who, for the joy that was set before Him, endured the cross, despising the shame. This is why His role as mediator is so important for us in our growth, in our faith, that we have one who became like us in the flesh so that He is not foreign to our sufferings or our temptations. 
Hebrews 2.17, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This one who is our mediator, who is acquainted with our griefs and our sufferings in this life, is not only our Savior and our mediator, but he is our friend. And when we suffer in this life, as I mentioned from Colossians 1, we mysteriously enter into his sufferings in our own place. This doesn't mean that his sufferings were deficient. It doesn't mean that his all-sufficient death lacked anything. But we participate in suffering to grow in grace, to testify to the consummation of redemption, to speak of the hope that we have, and to taste what no perfect angel will taste, that is to know from what we've been saved. Ever think about that? Angels can't know what we know. You have, you who have truly suffered, you know, you know what I'm talking about. You recognize what I'm saying. You who have been through this school, you know what I mean. You know that to suffer takes you to such a, a place that you question your faith so deeply. You know that to walk in a season of such loneliness that Jesus is the only one you feel can understand your pain and yet to emerge causes you to love and trust Him more. And you know all this and more because you know how to actually comfort others who are suffering instead of offering cliches and platitudes. 2 Corinthians 1 7, our hope is for you, our hope for you rather is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share. In our comfort. Earlier in that letter, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. I cannot make sense of suffering. I am not trying to make sense of suffering. Rather, I can only look to Jesus who suffered in my place and endured the cross for my sake, for the joy that was set before him. And I can only point you to him, who is acquainted with your griefs, and knows how you have suffered. He has promised that he will not break a bruised reed, nor will he snuff out a smoldering wick. He is meek and gentle, and he calls us to come to him. For the one who has never believed his call to you today is to come by faith, confessing your sin and your need for him, and resting in him alone. And for you who believe, he calls you to the same. Confess and believe as you grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Work out your faith in fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work within you. In the table that is spread before us, the great shepherd of the sheep feeds us with himself. He laid down his glory and put on flesh, so that he might lay down his flesh in suffering and put on death so that he might be raised again to life to conquer and atone for our sin. He bids us to come to him in this meal, to be reminded of his gracious love on display in the cross, to be nourished for the days ahead, and to be encouraged to walk in a manner pleasing to him. He calls us so that we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen. 
For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Let's pray.